0: Oh, we are okay, live. Let, let's, let's start with the actual introduction then. So, Sean, if you want
1: uh, to begin. What do you want me to do? We'll start the show. Oh, hi. Uh, this is We're in the podding shed. This is the podcast. Uh, we've got... Uh, this is me. This is Sean. This is Nick. Hello. I didn't say to speak. Uh, speak now. Hello. Yes. <laughs> and uh, we've got a very special guest on the line today. Uh, we're talking to George. George Daniel Lee. Oh. Author. Hello,
2: ladies and gentlemen. Ah. <laughs> it feels very strange when people call me that. Very, very peculiar indeed.
1: Well, stop writing things then, if that's the case.
2: That's a very, very good... Yes, yeah, that might help. Yeah. That might actually help. Mm.
1: So... Uh, I
2: we... that I might, you know, we've got things uh, being published next year as well, and there's other stuff coming out. That probably isn't going to change well, anytime time soon.
1: It's a tough old life, isn't it?
2: I know, I know, right? <laughs>
1: So we're, uh, we're here to talk about Born in Blood, uh, yours and Nick's uh, project, uh, we've mentioned um. it briefly on the show before, um, so I guess, let's start from the beginning, I mean how did you two meet, how did you get together?
2: You know, it was a bit of a weird one, wasn't it Nick, I mean didn't well, I, 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 mean, I knew of you through YouTube, and I think you knew of me as well, at yeah. some point? Yeah,
0: we met through our mutual friend Ray.
2: That's
0: right, yeah, yeah, you came to one of Ray's birthday parties, didn't you? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that was before uh, my first auto assembly as well, so...
2: Oh my god, really? That was that was before you'd ever attended auto assembly?
0: Maybe.
1: This
2: well, is
0: uh, the Transformers
1: oh, wow. convention, former Transformers convention, right? Auto yeah, it,
0: it's not going on anymore, even though Facebook is apparently lively with activity. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> Never mind. Yeah, it's slightly bizarre, that isn't it? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. We we met uh, some years ago, and how
1: many years? Ooh, since at least two thousand twelve.
2: Okay. But it was a while ago, wasn't it? Because Ray and John were still at their old flat at that point. They hadn't moved into their house, so that was that was a, a while back. And I don't think I was living in my current place either. So no, no. Yeah. yeah, it was a while back.
1: So, I mean... Which
2: is slightly distressing, actually. It's slightly distressing to realise how long ago it actually
1: was. Oh, don't get me started on time. There's never enough of it. It slips away. <laughs> I mean, how, how long have
2: you been working on the, the Born in Blood project from when you, you first mooted it, Nick? It's, it's been a long while, hasn't it? Three
0: years. Three years, really? Oh, God, yeah, that's, uh, that stabs me. That really does. That, that feels very peculiar indeed. So, uh, yeah, how it all began... Now, I could be all arty and pretentious and say that I had a vision. Right. Uh, but, but but what really happened? What really happened? I, I was bored one night. <laughs> I, I was bored at my school. Uh, so I, I went to the studio and put on some fake blood and made some funny faces to the camera. And then I put them on Facebook. Right. And then people started getting in touch about wanting the same done to them, which I thought was very, <laughs> I thought was very strange. But I, I kept getting more and more people asking for it, so I said, okay, yeah, I'll take your photos like that. Uh, but then they started asking, what's it for? Right. And I had no reason for it. I had no clue. So I got in touch with George, who is a, an yep. author, and asked him for a... A sentence, or a paragraph, just to describe... Yes, yeah, what you, what you asked me for was sort of just like
2: a sentence, or a, like a very, very, very short piece for each image.
0: No, 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 it was just... I correctly. It, it was just a, as an overall synopsis of the uh, the project, it was just... For-
2: oh, really? Is that, oh, is that what it was? I, I may have actually, in that case, my end of it may have been born out of a misunderstanding... Oh. Because I, I, I interpreted <laughs> um, what you asked for. Are, are, you, are you
0: saying that our birth was an accident? I think it's quite likely, yes. It, it,
2: the whole project may have been born out of a series of misunderstandings how, and accidents.
0: How fitting is that, that it wasn't... It wasn't, um, <laughs> it wasn't oh. a planned pregnancy.
1: Exactly. Uh, <laughs> well, that's the end of that, then. Oh. There goes Born in Blood. Yeah. <laughs> but ultimately, I mean, I,
2: I just couldn't rein myself in and I just wrote um, entire stories.
1: Yeah. Um,
2: based, and some of them were based on the images that Nick had given me, some of them were, were just based on the, the sort of the themes that I, I perceived in them and they just rolled on and on and on from there. And before I knew what was really happening, I had enough to put together into a short story collection easily.
0: Okay. So yeah, and people kept asking me what it was for, and
2: mm-hmm.
0: I came up with the idea of, uh, let's do it all for charity, for sure. mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, I also
2: think it was, um, as, as it was sort of swelling, as it was evolving and we were having conversations on um, what, it, what it could be, what it could be about. We started, there started to be certain coherent themes that worked, that we didn't, so much come up with is just becoming evident in the images that you were creating and the stories that I was writing. I mean, I, from my end, I didn't start writing the stories with any concept of there being an overarching mythology or a, a, consistent themes outside of... Um, their their visuals, their aesthetics, as it were. But as I was writing, it started to become apparent that there were themes. There was an overarching mythology building and building, um, which tied back into the images that Nick was creating. So eventually, when the the whole short story collection actually has, it, it functions as individual stories, but also as an overarching narrative as well.
0: But the interesting thing is that they can be put into any order, apart from the last story. Mm
2: -hmm. Apart from the last story, yeah. The last story kind of tops and tails the whole thing. It, um, It coheres all of the others into what is a fairly enormous kind of metaphysics, which I didn't really have any idea... About at the beginning of the project, it just started to accrue, and I think, in fact, Nick, I think you kind of, you kind of crystallised it for me because you started to notice certain resonances and themes throughout that were that, that seemed to be prevalent from one story to the next, and it just coalesced from there.
0: One thing that st- stuck out to me actually was something I approached to you years before. Uh, mm-hmm. I had an idea for a film, and, but I didn't know how to end it. and you had an idea for a story, but you didn't know how to begin it. So we, we kind of stuck those, those together. Uh, but you were going to then write a script based on it, but then you,
2: mm-hmm.
0: you went too far and turned it into a novel.
2: Oh, the Neverborn. The yeah, Never- Neverborn, Bo- yes. In fact, wasn't that wasn't that the very first concept we had? Yes. As a collaborative project, it was, wasn't it? Yeah. So, um, I, I can definitely. Yeah, it, it's
0: so... Sorry, I can. I sorry, can definitely on. see. Uh, reading one of the latest stories, it, I can definitely uh, pick up similarities between uh, the initial ideas of the Neverborn and mm-hmm. what these characters have gone
2: through. Uh, well, there is actually one story in Born in Blood, which is about... It actually derives from the Neverborn. It's actually about some of the characters that are in the original Neverborn novel. Um, and it also references certain elements of the mythology as well. But it, it's it's more... It's not quite as fleshed out, obviously, as the the first draft of the novel is. I mean, the first draft of the novel is enormous. It's absolutely enormous. The reason I haven't done anything with it is because it's it's just... It needs... It needs redrafting. It needs refining. I still think there's a lot of potential in that mythology, huge potential. I think it could be like it, it could be almost like a you know Game of Thrones, The Lord of the Rings style mythology. It could be that elaborate if I if I could just get it to work. But it's getting it to work. That's the thing. The first draft of the Neverborn. There's, there are good. I think there's, there's some good stuff in it. There's some good ideas and some good scenes, but as a, a whole work, I don't think it works just yet.
1: So, as it currently stands then, no no further plans with, with that going forward?
2: Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I still want to work on it. I still want to take that first draft and take out the bits that are good, take out the bits that work and make it more refined, make it more... <coughs> I mean, what, what it really needs, that for me, for, for, for my end, that project just needs a little bit of coherence. It needs a bit more clarity. Um, the problem for, with the initial draft, I think, is that it's just too, it's too elaborate. It's far, there's far too many characters. There's far too much stuff going on all at once. Um, it needs to be pared right down to the core concepts and then maybe some of the more the more abstruse back mythology needs to be saved for maybe later installments maybe uh, another book in the series or maybe in the form of short stories or whatever
1: okay you, you strike me as somebody with uh, an excess of ideas so whether anything will actually come yeah. of this particular one i suppose depends on uh... On which other ideas come to the fore first? I suppose. That's absolutely that absolutely is. Yeah, yeah awesome. I mean, it's
2: such an odd process, though. I mean, I've always found the stuff that actually gets made, the stuff that gets out. I mean, it's like it's like Born in Blood. I mean, I I really didn't expect Born in Blood to become what it's become at all. I mean, it was it was almost when it first started, it was a favour for Nick. You know, Nick asked me to do this thing, and it mm. I, that's what I thought it would be. Uh, I didn't think it would be. Enormous. I didn't think it would be um, a series of volumes and a short story collection, and I certainly didn't think it would swell into the mythology that it's become. No. But that is what's happened, and people are responding so well to it. I mean, I've I've um, I've had a number of test readers for the complete short story collection, so all of the all of the short stories that will eventually be published in the volumes have been read. Okay. by people and they are responding amazingly well to it. I mean like amazingly well. I um I did not expect that because it is it is a bit of an experiment. I think from both my end and from Nick's end. I I don't always know how people are going to respond to this material, especially when it's so deviant, when it's so transgressive, and quite frankly horrible at times. I mean, yeah. it, it is a it's a nihilistic bit of work. It's not a very hopeful bit of work at no, all. Definitely
0: not.
1: <laughs> so, you, you
0: you've read, have you read the first volume, Sean? I know you have a copy.
1: I, I must admit, I haven't read it completely yet. But what you have read, what do you think? I, I mean, I like it. I mean, I think even. Um, even if you take out the short story element of it, I think just as a collection of images, it works.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it, as a visual, uh, as a piece of visual work, the, the the images that Nick has created and the the way they they work together, the way they work in tandem with one another, there is almost like an implied story or mythology yeah. through them.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and then having the stories on top of that, then that just adds mm-hmm. another level altogether cuz i mean for me personally i think image and story i, I like the mesh of the two mm-hmm. um, so yeah i just think it works fantastically um i i just need to finish reading it to be honest <laughs> <laughs> well what um what i can do is i mean, I'm,
2: i Nick, you've got a you've got a copy of the full collection haven't you oh, yes. there. Yeah, I, I yeah yeah well but no he you know for
0: no he's paying for his He's paying to read it.
1: Yeah, I'm, I've got okay, nothing okay. for free. No, no. Unbelievable. <gasps> he, he uses the charity word as a weapon.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, that's that's part of the uh, the benefits of it being for charity, I suppose. You can sort of beat people over the head with it and say, "Well, yeah. we could give you a free copy, <laughs> but it's not us that's uh, that's being left out of pocket. It's it's the charity."
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, uh, so a lot a lot of people have seen the imagery, but not a lot of people know about the uh, the stories about your contribution. Mm-hmm. So, what can you tell us about the mythology behind? Uh, this Aberyce. Is it Aberyce? Uh,
2: it writes? is Aberyce, yeah. Well, it's it's something that I didn't intend. That's that's the most weird thing about it, and that's what makes it, for me, slightly distressing. I did not intend it to come about. What I originally intended was for the stories to be much more sort of down-to-earth, to be more, I suppose, to be more realistic than, say, the, the stories in my first uh, collection, Strange Playgrounds. Uh, which are very metaphysical, you know. They, they they're very they, there are definite fantastical elements in Strange Playgrounds. There's mm. there's there's magic and there's monsters and there's there's uh, just bizarre metaphysical apocalypses and all this odd, weird, abstruse imagery. I didn't intend that to be part of Born Ooh. in Blood initially. I thought it was going to be more realist, So it was going to be more about um, the it, rather than just referencing mental health the stories would be about minds breaking down and some of them are some of them are about that but into that there is this and I I don't know where it actually came from there is this metaphysics where there is almost a there's almost a celebration of madness there is almost a the concept that the common human experience of suffering of pain of despair resonates in some other place in some state whereby it has accrued and become a place it's become an almost afterlife style place um which is it's it's a sort of hell beyond hell it's it's not beholden to any particular metaphysics it's not beholden to any god or creator it just exists because it's what human beings experience and all of the characters in all of the stories end up there. In one way, shape or form they end up there. And it is it's like a it's the manifestation of a kind of primal scream. It's the it's the first blood choked hack of the baby being born, essentially. It's it's that first experience of pain and trauma resonating throughout all of humanity, that that one commonality that we all share, and the neuroses that derive from that made manifest.
1: Okay. So, I mean, you said that you um, initially didn't want to go um, the, the more fantastical route. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I get the impression that that's your style, generally speaking. Is, is that fair comment? That's yeah, definitely
2: true that is definitely true and it just seems to be something that seeps in Yeah. Um, and I think it's, you know, I, I'm i a big believer in allowing the work to be what it wants to be, I mean it yeah. sounds really kind of pretentious and artsy and whatnot but it is kind of true yeah, there yeah. very often, if you try to force something to be what it isn't with some preconceived idea, then it doesn't come out right, it doesn't work, it feels it feels stilted, and it feels wrong, and it feels forced. Yeah. And, and readers can pick up on that. They so, can so pick up on that. I, I pick up on that when I'm reading other people's work, when I can feel that it's it's not quite right somehow. It just feels like it's not flowing naturally. And that's what these stories wanted to be ultimately. They wanted to have they wanted, they wanted to be more than just expressions of absolute despair. Although that, that element is definitely there, it's definitely part of them. Um, they wanted to be to feed into something wider and something bigger. So that's that's just what happened.
1: Okay, so originally, then, was it almost a challenge to yourself to try and do something a little bit different from your previous works? Do you think? Or...
2: Oh, oh, definitely, yeah. definitely. I mean, what I one of the things I definitely did not want with this is for it to be just strange playgrounds with a slightly different motif added to it. Yeah. and I hope it's not that. Uh, I I sincerely hope that it is something different. In you know, if only in tone, in flavour, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um. I, I sincerely hope... I mean, one of the things I, I, I hope that I've hit is that whereas the... I mean, Strange Playgrounds does a similar thing. There is a sort of top-and-tailing thing that goes on in that collection. So there is an initial short story that doesn't end, then a body of short stories that thematically feed into one another, and then there's a tailing short story that caps them all off and coheres them together. Okay. And the 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 sort of the metaphysics of that... Election is quite hopeful in its own bizarre and weird way. It's it's dark, it's, it's strange, it's unusual, but it is kind of hopeful. There is a note of hopefulness at the end. What I was hoping with this one is to take it in the opposite direction, Okay. For it to be, yeah, there's a metaphysics to the universe. It's almost Lovecraftian, I suppose, in a way. Yeah, mm. yeah, there's a metaphysics. There's an afterlife. But it's not what you think and it's not what you want. It's actually something hideous. It's, it's an expression of all that's, that's worst in humanity. It's, it's all of our darkness. It's all of our neurosis. It's all of our collective insanity and madness and pain and suffering. That's what we've created. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of what I was going for.
0: Okay. One thing I, I liked, because you gave us a uh, notes on the mythology. Uh, one thing I liked is that in Aberace itself, uh, there's uh, different kind of churches have popped up and they have their little skirmishes and uh-huh. uh, you know, pain and sufferings become a religion in, in itself.
2: And a, and a series of religions. Yeah, I mean yeah. the the whole thing about apparatus is that it's been accruing for as long as there have been human beings, as long as long as there has been suffering. Essentially, um, it, it's so it's it's the most elaborate structure you could possibly think of. And as a result of that, there are also Different sort of subcults and churches and sects and choirs that have developed within it um, that all emphasise different aspects of suffering, um, and they they conflict. And sometimes they have common cause. Uh, sometimes there are civil wars. They're almost like holy crusades of wars between the, between them. And over overlooking all of it, you have the choirs who are essentially the angels of Aberrice. They're the they're the, the entities and the consciousnesses that have ascended through their suffering. They've, they've reached this state of almost purity through it. And they're the ones that overlook everything
0: and that guide Abarais towards its ultimate end. And then you also mentioned things about uh, the waking world and agents of Abarais in the waking world. And also, a, I think there was a uh, an kind of organization uh, kind of fighting against it. In the real world. Oh
2: yes, well, actually, that's that kind of ties back to what we were talking about earlier because the the agencies that are fighting against Abharice or the the agents of Abharice, like the um, um, the severed, for example, and the um, I can't quite remember the names of some of the organisations, but there are quite a few of them. They actually are the same agents that are fighting against the Neverborn or oh. that um, are trying to eradicate the Neverborn.
0: That's a crossover universe.
2: I'm yeah, there's there, quite it. a few. <laughs> there's quite a bit of crossover, actually, uh, between the two mythologies, which I rather, I rather enjoyed writing. I rather enjoyed sort of just bringing in little tones and references to the mythology, um, which, yeah. you know, may actually feed in. I may actually bring Aberaise to bear when I start rewriting the Neverborn again.
1: Who are your influences, George? You mentioned Lovecraft earlier on. I get a bit yeah. of a sense of Clive Barker from you as well. Clive Barker's huge. I yeah. mean,
2: Clive Barker, I would probably say, is one of the biggest influences. I mean, I I started reading Barker when I was 11, okay. and and before then, I'd, I'd already been exposed to the likes of Hellraiser yeah, and whatnot. Yeah. I mean, um, Barker's book Weave World was the first of his that I ever read, okay. and it's... It was a bit of a revelation to me because up until that point, my experience of fantasy had been more—it had been more high fantasy stuff. It had been like Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and Alan Garner. Um, I didn't really realise up until that point that fantasy could also be very real. That it could—you op- could create this dichotomy between the, the sort of grittily psychologically real and the, the absolutely fantastical. Okay. and th- th- it blew my mind, it really did Weave World completely blew my mind and from that point on I not only consumed everything that Barker had written but I went out and looked for other writers that did this, people like, like Neil Gaiman, like China Mielville um, I also, I mean, William Blake is an enormous influence I, mean, I, I adore poetry, I love poetry um, I love the romantics in particular absolutely adore the romantics, Byron and Blake being the ones that do it for me every time. I and mean, with Blake, what I really love, beyond the fact that his his command of language is, is is almost unsurpassed, it is absolutely beautiful. It's the metaphysics. It's this strange, weird, almost lunatic metaphysics where... He takes the imagery of, say... I mean, for Blake, it was obviously Christianity and biblical imagery, but weaves it and turns it into something entirely his own, something that's that's so far removed from
1: what was being prescribed at the time. OK. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I would have guessed that you were into poetry from your prose. There's a very... Um, <laughs> you've got a very poetic turn of phrase, I think. Oh, thank you. Um, so, uh, yeah, now um what about cinema you are you a, are you a movie fan we're, we're talking about shared universes now that's obviously a big thing in cinema at the moment at
2: the moment I mean that's obviously massive yeah, yeah. I mean uh, I was as, lo- as well as literature I was raised on film yeah absolutely raised on cinema most of my influences in that regard do come from my mother I mean when I was a kid there were there were just Entire bookshelves of work available yeah. uh, from various writers. I mean, lot, I mean, my, my mother has always been a horror fan, so we we had books uh, by Stephen King, which is her favorite. Mm. Um, there were books by Clive Barker. There were books by uh, so so many people. I can't even. I cannot even catalogue the number of books that um, we had in uh, just readily available when I was a kid. And I think one of the key things is I, my brother and I were never restricted. In terms of what we could read, um, we were we as if we were old enough to, to be able to be, to show interest, yeah. then we were allowed to read it essentially. Okay. And the same goes with cinema. My my mother had a VHS collection that that would have shamed most video rental stores. Okay, uh, it, okay. it was just enormous. And we, again, we were largely unrestricted in what we could watch. Right. Um, The result being that by the time I was say 12, I probably consumed most of what would have been considered classic horror films. So everything from Night of the Living Dead up to Alien, um, Evil Dead, The Thing, Cronenberg's work, the, the work of Dario Argento, all of that stuff. And I absolutely love it. I've got a real... Attachment to that work. I mean, the, the biggest product of that, I I think, is that it's made both myself and my brother complete horror snobs. Right. Complete horror snobs. It it has to be very, very, very fine work indeed.
1: To there's something about that era. My, there's something about that era that you're talking about, though, in horror. I think from mm-hmm. from the '60s through to the '80s, that just isn't matched. These days.
2: Yeah. I would agree. I think part of, the, part of it is, I mean, they, it's, almost, it's almost become a matter of canon now. If you talk to anyone who operates in horror or who writes about horror, critics, writers, they will, they will say largely the same thing. There is, there is an established golden age yeah. of, of horror cinema. And it seems to be from the mid to late 60s right up until arguably the early 1990s. Right. And I think what makes it so good is that it's socially and politically yeah. reflexive. It's not operating in a vacuum. If you look at work like, say, Night of the Living Dead by George Romero, now, some people argue that that was the first one. That was the one that kind of sparked the horror renaissance, that made horror, uh, certainly mainstream horror cinema, clever and witty and gave it uh, layers and depths of political and sociocultural resonance. And that carries on. From that point, right the way through up until works that are being produced in the 1990s, towards the the mid-90s, towards the end of the 90s, you get this situation where horror, because it's, it's still quite profitable is just being produced with a reference to its own tropes and traditions, not because it's actually saying anything, not because it has any particular resonance. It's just being produced because it's profitable. And as a result, it becomes self-reflexive. It almost becomes like inward looking and self-parodic. And that's when you get the the sort of tongue in cheek horror, the stuff that I, I would argue can't even legitimately be called horror. For my money, if something's going to call itself horror, it's going to operate under that label, it needs to be genuinely distressing. It needs to have an effect upon you whereby you, you can't get up from watching it the same person as when you sat down to watch it. Okay. If you can, if you can walk away from it and not feel somehow distressed or disturbed or unsettled, then it hasn't worked. It hasn't done its job.
1: So are you, are you talking about the sort of scream era then? <sighs>
2: Yeah, in, I, mean, Scream, I, I mean, Scream, I don't mind so much. I like the original Scream simply because it, of the way it operates, although it, it is a marker. It definitely is a marker of the phenomena I'm talking about, and yeah. the, the sort of self-reflexive, self-parodic stuff, because it is a parody. I mean, the thing about Scream is that horror fans who watch Scream see a comedy... Whereas people who are not horror fans see a horror film.
1: That's an interesting point. Yeah, yeah, I, I know what you mean. That yeah.
2: seems to be that seems to be how it works. I mean, I, I find Scream absolutely hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> because it is just this giant. It's this grab bag of references and parody, uh, and, and very wittily, very cleverly lampoons a lot of the tropes and traditions of particularly slasher horror, and it's very clever in that regard. I mean, it is very. It is so aware. Of those tropes and traditions, and it lampoons them very, very, very well. But it is the beginning of the end.
0: Yeah. One thing that I spoke to you about uh, in your phone call was that the um, kind of the downfall of, say, the the golden age of horror, mm. is that mm-hmm. uh, these days it's the horror icons have become only that now icons. Well, c- exactly. Can you really call Pinhead scary now? You can buy a plushie. Mm.
2: Yeah. Ex- exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's the same thing that's happened to the likes of Blue and whatnot. They become... And it's something It's something that, actually, it's sort of like a microcosm of stuff that happens in wider culture. When something is introduced to culture, that culture wants to be potentially damaging or dangerous to itself, then it has this effect of assimilating it and turning it into a parody of itself. I mean, if you look at things like, say, um, movements, like cultural movements, like, say, punk in the 1980s, for example, punk was considered, I mean, if you look at the newspaper, certainly the, like the right-wing newspapers of the day, it was regarded as a genuinely deviant movement. Mm. You know, there was mm. all of this hyperbole about how it is, the, it's the decay of society, it's, it's the, the destruction of, of manners and standards and of articulacy and of beauty. But of course now, Punk is the imagery of punk has been so assimilated that it's a parody of itself. It's actually a matter of comedy, right. and it, it it is not counterculture anymore. It's, it's all, become culture.
0: Yeah, it's all uh, style and no substance. Hello. Oh, hello. Yeah. I thought we, thought we lost you there.
2: Yes, I, I, I had a slight disturbance there. Some weird kind of sound was coming over the telephone. I don't know, maybe it's what we're talking about. Maybe it was kind of conjuring something up here.
1: You see what happens when you speak, Nick. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I bring the darkness. (laughs) Clearly. What about music, George? Are you you a a, a fan of music? Uh, Any Absolutely, Absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, again, it's it's, it's my
2: mother's influence as well. She's just a media file. I mean, my mother is just a flat-out media files. She loves everything, everything media-based. So, film, books, cinema, music. Um, What what she had when um, I was a child is a huge record collection, a vinyl record collection. Um, And she had concept albums like um, Call to the Crimson King and War of the Worlds and, you know, sort of prog rock albums that had Roger Dean album covers and that kind of stuff. Um, And we used to listen to them all the time. We used to listen to them all the time. So I have a massive sentimental attachment to that stuff. Uh, because I was born in the 1980s, I also like stuff like, I quite like the new romantic stuff. I like, um, huge fan of K Bush. Absolutely love K Bush. Um, but I also like just a wide variety of music. Huge, huge variety of music. I don't listen to it while I'm writing. And I know a lot of writers do. And they—they, they, I know a lot of writers. They listen to different things depending on what they're in the mood to write. You know, okay. it, it, it produces different types of work. But I—I I can't do that. I find it distracting.
1: What you need total silence is—is is that what you need? Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. yeah if, if possible, as close to total silence as absolutely possible.
0: Maybe just a, a, a thunderstorm in the background and some branches scraping the window, perhaps.
2: Anything like the ambient sound, oh yeah, I could go for a little bit of ambient sound, but um, like music, no, I, I would find myself getting too distracted by the music itself.
1: Yeah, I like to really listen to it if I'm listening to it, I can't just have it as background noise.
2: No, no, nor me, nor me. Although, you know, that said, I've been, one of the things I have been doing recently, because I work in care um, alongside the, my writing, right. and it's, um, it's, you know, I'm often very, very busy. I'm traveling, I'm moving from place to place, so you know, from going from job to job. Um, and one of the things I have taught myself to do is write in transit. So if I'm on the bus, for example, or if I'm on the train, or if I'm in a cafe waiting uh, for a client or to go to work or something like that, I find that I can tune out that degree of noise, like the, the background babble and whatnot. I can work in those environments. Okay. And it does it does produce slightly different kinds of work, which I think is really interesting. I find that really fascinating. I particularly like places of transition places like train stations for example i really like sitting in train station cafes and writing don't know why don't know why that that's a thing but that seems to produce really good fluid dynamic work
1: okay interesting are you are you you a procrastinator in your writing Are are you the kind of guy that will do anything to not have to write or, or
2: no, no, i mean <laughs> no, there was a time when that was true and i think that's true of practically everybody who starts yeah um you know you, when you start that you will do anything you will because you're afraid i think because you're afraid that you won't be able to do it or that it won't come out well um you find distractions for yourself and you will come up with any number of excuses in your own head oh well i've got a cold today so maybe if i if i do a little bit less than usual oh well i've been at work and i'm tired and blah 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 and ultimately i think I think a measure of any any well, you know success when it comes to producing work is you just get over that. you know you, you have to, you have to drag yourself up a little bit. There is a slightly it, it's an odd thing, but there is a slightly right- wing element to the work, which is beyond all of the the sort of hairy fairy stuff, the inspiration, the the, the themes and the resonances and, the and all that all that stuff, the abstracts, there is this not some bolts element to it where you've just got to sit down and write.
1: Yeah, of course. You know,
2: I mean, maybe what you produce will be crap that day. Maybe it will be bad stuff. But it's fine. It's okay. You know, you've you've produced something, and there may be good work in
0: there. I think this is an area where you and I offer the same advice. So if someone who's wanting to write comes to you and asks you, how do I start I get the same thing. People asking, "How do I become a photographer?" You just mm. do it.
2: Mm. You do it. <laughs> yeah, get 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 whatever you need you know, for whatever you want to do. If you want to draw, get pen or get pencils and drawing pads, if you want to paint, get a canvas and an easel and a paintbrush if you want to write, just get a notepad or a computer or a laptop and just sit and do it, put one word after the other and eventually sentences will start to accrue and eventually paragraphs will start to accrue and before you know it, you you may have something, you know, you may have a bit of work.
0: So here's a question I've never thought about asking you because of the nature of your creations <laughs> What comedies do you like?
2: What comedies do I like? Oh, man, uh... I mean, this—it it sounds like I'm giving the same answer every single time. But again, I was not restricted as a kid in terms of what I could watch on television. So, uh, again, I—I I would say I was raised as much on comedy as I was on horror, to be honest. Because um, Monty Python, absolutely love anything by the Pythons. Uh, I particularly yes. like The Life of Brian. I think it's—it's—it's it's, it's one of the cleverest, funniest films I have ever seen. And even though I like, I think I watched it first when I was eight or something like that. I, I, and I know every single damn line of the film. It still makes me howl. It still just creases me up with how clever and funny and witty and deviant it is. Um, I love anarchic comedy. I like stuff like Bottom. I really like anything that's got Rick Mayall or, or Aid Edmondson in it. Um, the League of Gentlemen, obviously. Love horror comedy. I like comedy that sounds slightly close to the wind that's got a, a slightly disturbing element to it. Um, well, Brass Eye, <laughs> Brass Eye, I think is probably one of the finest comedies I have ever seen in my life. Um, the thick of it, it's like politically and so uh, culturally resonant comedy, I think is fantastic.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think um, similar to horror in some ways. I think a lot of certainly mainstream comedy doesn't really touch on uh, our culture as much. No, do you agree with that? Is that some, is that just yeah, something that's absolutely. rife in, uh, would, in film? Do you think? I totally agree with that. I, I think there is something rather insidious
2: happening in comedy at the moment, and it's one of the reasons why. I mean, I don't want to get too sort of old man in my day about it, but one of the problems with sort of certainly mainstream p- comedy at the moment, and certainly in this country, is that it's bland, it's banal, it's it's socially reinforcing rather yeah. than parodying or bringing into question social norms TV so you're getting a lot of this yeah. sort of domestic almost like domestic drama comedy
1: yeah a lot of that, where
2: yeah. it's it's got a it's got a narrative element to it and it's got a slightly moral element to it as well which i hate i yeah, hate in comedy me too, yeah. i have i have got a real penchant for cruel comedy or for for, for harsh comedy yeah. that has a slightly bitter edge or tang to it you know stuff like with nail and i I think With yeah. Lies is one of the finest comedy films ever produced uh, because it's not only hilarious, like genuinely gut-achingly hilarious, it's also very sad and very dark and, and has something to say about the nature of the culture in which we live. You know, it's, it's a despairing look at the culture in which we live. And I love comedy that can do that and that can do it well. One
0: thing I've noticed... Uh... In recent years, is that a lot of comedy, especially from America? Uh, it's not so much jokes as it is mm-hmm. crude descriptions of things. Yeah. That's the yeah point yeah yeah line. yeah. Especially in uh, Paul Feig's work. Right. Uh, <laughs> and it, I, I can't I can't understand how these works keep getting produced because it's not funny at all. Yeah, but
1: you keep watching
2: it. That's oh, the problem. It's not funny. Yeah, that, that's exactly it. I mean, it is. It, I mean, if you want to take it even further, it's it's the lowest common denominator stuff, isn't it? It's stuff, yeah. it, it's a product of the the X Factor of Pop Idol of Strictly Come Dancing and all that nonsense. This yeah. is the stuff that people watch that seems to get the views because it's inoffensive, it's bland, it's reinforcing, it doesn't challenge, it doesn't question, it doesn't make people uncomfortable. Yeah, safe. at all. Now,
0: I'm, I'm going to bring something up that I spoke to you in the car on the way back.
2: Okay.
1: Uh,
0: and that is a, a particular film called Central Intelligence, starring Dwayne Johnson mm. and... Uh, Kevin Hart. Kevin Hart.
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, on ah. the surface, it's a spy comedy uh, where you've got your everyday man... It's your know, fish-out-of-water fish out spy comedy. Mm-hmm. But on watching the film, it quickly became apparent that it's also quite rapey. Yeah. Short, Sean's laughing here. But it, it comes across like that because you've got Kevin Hart, who's this small guy, and mm-hmm. he's thrust into this situation he doesn't want to be in. He's constantly telling Dwayne Johnson, No, I don't want to be here. Leave me yeah. alone. And Dwayne is either ignoring him or just hearing yes. Yeah. And he just pulls him in without his consent or willingness. Mm-hmm. Uh, throughout the entire thing. And that's where a lot of the comedy from the film comes from, is that yeah. this this guy who doesn't want to be in a situation is in a situation. And I, I found that quite... I wanted to enjoy it, because I do enjoy but, the, how they work together, but it just came yeah. across like he was... His life was being raped by The Rock.
2: It was becoming uncomfortable, yeah? Yeah. Uh, and not in, a, not in a good way. I mean, the, the sad thing is, a cleverer work could have made something of that tension. You know, it could have actually made it interesting. It could have acted as a commentary upon it, you know? But what I'm finding is there's a lot, particularly in comedy and also in other genres as well, there is this unconscious atrocity, you know, where it is treated with blandishment as though it's not that big a deal.
0: Now, I was actually shocked that no one in the writing staff... Or the crew at mm-hmm. any point would have mentioned it to someone, that yeah. this film comes across that way. But then, yeah. re- as we, as recent news comes out in these days, <laughs> yes. uh, it is I think people did notice but just didn't care. That's Hollywood. Yeah, That's Hollywood. it's just become it's just become a normalised
2: thing. You know, it, it's not commented on because it is just part of the culture. It's become. It's a, it's a case of true evil. You know, I mean, that, that's, that's an example of true evil to me, of real evil outside of sort of the mythic evil that you get in the likes of, say, The Lord of the Rings or in most written fantasy where evil is, it's elemental and it's epic and it's something that has a kind of poetry to it. It has its own innate poetry. It, this is genuine evil, which is this slow, sad, weary erosion of anything decent. Yeah. and it's it's the normalization of what is ultimately atrocious, but people come to accept it because it becomes normalized very slowly and insidiously, and so much of what is mainstream work is guilty of that, so, so much of it
1: yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's... Oh, you see
2: it in the superhero films. You see it in the superhero films all the time, which are really pervasive now. Yeah. They're really pervasive. Uh, don't get me wrong; I like a lot of them as much as anyone else does. You know, there's a there, a lot of them are very well produced. They're, there's a great sense of fun about them. Some of the really good ones are actually rather deviant, but by and large, they are just excuses for seeing someone solving problems with violence That's in a very fun. elaborate way. Yeah. They are. There are ways to make people enjoy seeing other people getting hit very hard.
1: Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's and nothing that's new, though, is it? That's actually that's been action movies since mm-hmm. the '60s, probably.
0: Well, all, all entertainment
1: yeah. is based on uh,
0: Schadenfreude, right? Mm-hmm. A- a- every any form of entertainment or game is based on one person beating another. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. true. That's it, it, that's human nature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just looking up a, a superhero film that I watched last year, and I found it absolutely... American Hero. There we go. In 2015. If you, if you, don't know that one. Oh, it's, uh, I'll read you the synopsis. Uh, Melvin, a reluctant superhero, lives only for crime, women and drugs, until he realises that the only way he will ever get to see a strange son is to go straight and fulfil his potential as a crime fighter. It's a very... It's like a found footage movie.
2: Right, okie-dokie. Uh,
0: starring Stephen Dorff uh, and Eddie Griffin. And it's oh. like... It's like a, he, he's, he's sort of like a documentary crew following him on his journey. And mm-hmm. it's very, very good. I do recommend that over a mainstream superhero film yeah i mean you do you do
2: occasionally get these wonderful bits of work that actually parody the mainstream and don't get me wrong i wouldn't I wouldn't even mind the pervasiveness of the the more mainstream superhero films if it were not for the if there was something else if there was something else to sort of counteract them or, or to divert from them, but they dominate so massively at the moment because they generally make a great deal of money but that that is what studios are going to option. That said, there has been a bit of a sea change recently with the, the financial success of it at the box office. Mm. Now, yeah, whatever you think of the film itself, one thing I will say, it's the first time in you know, well over a decade that a mainstream horror film has made money. Has actually made a a, a significant amount of money. And what it might do, and what I sincerely pray it does, is open the way. It may act as a kind of gateway. What it might do is is encourage studios, mainstream studios, to start looking at this work now, to start looking at, maybe looking back at Stephen King, looking at other writers from around that period, like Clive Barker, and maybe optioning adaptations of their work, which can be no bad thing
0: or perhaps look to more independent writers such as um well who could we think of <laughs> Well, that would be great, but
2: it's... Uh, yeah, I mean, it does open the door a little bit. I mean, and this, this does seem to be the way with horror cinema in general. It does have these peaks and troughs, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. Depending on what's happening in wider culture, you you have these moments where it, ju- it almost dissolves completely. It goes away. It is not profitable. And it is pushed right to the margins. It becomes exclusively independent. And then something happens. You have this happy confluence of political situations, sociocultural climate, and that, that figure, that one writer, director, artist, whatever, who redefined it somehow. The last time it arguably happened would be in the 1970s when Stephen King started writing. Now, whatever you might think about King's writing, and I'm, I'm up and down with King. You know, I, I, I like some of his work. I don't like all of it. What he did was help to resurrect horror, as a mainstream genre, he helped it to become profitable again. And when it becomes profitable, that's what opens the doors to other writers coming in. Without without Stephen King, then Clive Barker would not have been picked up. There's no there's no doubt about that. Um, and that is actually true directly as well. I mean, part of what made Barker's career as a writer is that by some happy coincidence, the, uh, Barker's Books of Blood, his short story collection, happened to land on Stephen King's desk. And Stephen King read it and then wrote a very, very flattering letter to Barker's publisher saying, this guy is the future of horror. This guy, I think one of the things he says in the letter is, this guy makes the rest of us look like we've been asleep for the last decade.
1: Okay. <laughs> High praise.
2: And that's, that is what made Barker's career so that's what you need that's what you need to happen i mean the fact that we're still looking back at stephen king's works you know all these decades later is somewhat despairing because there are there are more writers out there there are better writers out there there are way better writers i understand why king is popular i definitely understand that you know he has a certain appeal but I do wish that they'd take a chance on something a little bit more deviant i mean if you I mean Barker's a very good example because although he's quite prominent in cinema, very few of his actual work has been adapted, very few and even less have been adapted successfully. I mean most of the film adaptations are not that great
1: no, no, that's true,
2: that's true. and I think that's largely because. His work is so difficult to realise. It's so abstruse and weird and metaphysical, and the imagery is so out there. It is it often in some of the more outlandish books like *Weave World* and *Imagica*. It's like being on an acid trip.
1: Yeah, sure. I'll tell you what I want to know, George. Speaking about uh, authors being adapted into film, when are you uh, and Nick going to make a film? I'd love to.
2: It's one of the things I would I would actually genuinely love to do. I've always been interested in like the process of filmmaking.
0: Hang on, Sean. Yes, Nick? Didn't I ask you to draft up a script?
1: <laughs> yeah, but then you told me it was rubbish and George could do a better job. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not in so many words, well, but that's definitely what you meant. <laughs> well, at the, at the moment, what I'm doing is
2: working on um, some adaptation. I mean, it's something that I'm quite new at. It's something that I've toyed with before, but never really sat down to to do properly, you know, to actually concentrate on. But I am working on a couple. I mean, I do believe I sent Nick an adaptation of one of the stories at Strange Playgrounds called Brain, Brain Food, which Brain is food. kind of my... Um, one of the things I wanted to do in Strange Playground is kind of smuggle into it a vampire story, a werewolf story, and a zombie story, but have them be so different from what those sub genres generally consist of that people wouldn't realise that's what they are. Okay. Um, and Brain Food is my zombie story.
1: And it's very good. Well, come on then, where's this film? That's where I want <laughs> to know. wait until the New Year.
2: I, I would love to make it. I would love to make it I think it could work as well I actually think it could work
0: yeah I've read, I've read the script and yeah it's very dual so
1: okay
2: excellent stuff um, and there's also another couple of bits and pieces that we've we've been working on for a little while really haven't we Nick you know just uh, there was the the adaptation of Cain's Gospel
0: yep that's that's the one we've been actually Sean you did write a draft of that that I did like and wanted to make into something separate uh, we just have to ah. find a, a competent uh, crew to actually do that <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, that one, I mean, I have been trying to adapt that one for a while, and there are multiple different scripts of that flying about, but I will get that done because I think it's possible. I think it's difficult. It's, I... it, it's going to require some deftness and a lot of sleight of hand to get it to work, but it can be done.
0: I think I'm wanting to uh, actually adapt uh, oh, what's it called now? An Idiot's Hope first. Uh, it seems oh, my more,
2: God. It's, it's, An idiot's hope. You really want to have a go at
0: that? Well, the visuals of it, uh, aside from the creatures, uh, I, yes. c- I could see getting those kind of locations quite easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, thinking of it as from a filmmaking perspective, it does seem quite simple to do. It would just need to it rely is, uh, on uh, the
2: cast. I, I can see how it would work like in terms of of a script because it is very filmic anyway I mean even even the way it's set out it is basically like a film script anyway isn't it I mean it, that, it, it, it works very visually but it's um, it's going to be a challenge that one tell it's going to be a challenge it. simply what's, what's because the of the, the creatures and the effects and things
0: in it well, I think I think the less you show of the creatures the better
2: Uh huh, and cheaper I, I really yeah, feel like animals, I'm on the outside uh,
1: can you tell uh, me what this like thing's about I mean,
2: one of the things I would insist on is practical effects.
1: You know, whatever effects are in
0: it, they've got to be practical. So, uh, Sean, uh, An Idiot's Hope is about... It's a classic noir detective story uh, where the femme fatale uh, enlists the aid of the detective uh, in tracking down her husband and it leads to occults and monsters and ghosts. Uh, It all ends in... A, an abandoned mansion, and right. I, I won't give away the ending. But one one thing I did look quite like about the story is the way you wrote it. It was as uh, it, it was jumping through time back and forth. Yep. Yes, good. I'm glad I, I caught that because when I, when I first started reading yep. it, when I got to the second chapter, I, I was like, where am I now? Then, yeah. What's going on now? Yeah. I mean that that's that's
2: one of my worries. That was one of my worries with the story actually because it does. One of the things I always love about noir stories, and I, I do, I've got a real, real thing for noir, like really hard-boiled detective noir, and I love it when it's married to horror. It can work really, really well, um, is that, you know, you get this this impression. The central detective character has always got this backstory. They're always kind of ruined characters they always have like some tragedy in their background or they're they're like an alcoholic or they have some mental problem or something like that and i wanted to sort of capture that but give it a real horror spin a real horror motif
0: yeah Now, one thing i also uh found that how yours was different from any others was the uh and the sexuality elements yes of course and that was very you know obviously very different uh Uh Tell us more about that.
2: So, oh, tell you more about that. Well, I mean, it, it kind of is what it is. But the, um, yeah, there are definitely sexual and erotic elements in a lot of what I like. And what I like about that is that you can use it to, and you can use it to sort of contrast all of the other stuff that's happening, but it also operates on a similar level, at a similar level of emotional intensity. That's what it allows you to do, and I really, really like that. I like the dichotomy of it. Yeah.
0: Uh, well, I think we've uh, just about to run out of time, uh, mm-hmm. but it's been wonderful to talk to you, George. Yeah, thanks very much, George.
2: Ah, uh, it's been it's been my absolute pleasure, my absolute. It's not it's, it's not that often I get to sort of wax lyrical about like the writing and whatnot, and it's really really nice to do. So thanks for the opportunity.
0: Oh, no, thank you for taking the time. So, ladies and gentlemen, that was George. That was the, George? That was George Lee. He doesn't like the Daniel. Does he uh, not? Well, no. I think he said he
1: does. It does it, but he says it sounds weird when people say his full name. Oh. So, George Lee. George, okay. it's jo- not George Daniel Lee, as I uh, announced him as earlier on. No. But, uh, yeah, so he that was a very nice chat. He brought a lot of
0: things to the table that people weren't fully aware of with Bull and Blood because they only yeah. see the images. That's and, right. yeah, it's nice to know more about it. Need some new upstarts to revitalise Hollywood. Yep. Like, like a new writer and some new people who just want to. Create things for the enjoyment of creating them. Where shall we find these people? I don't know, Nick. Where could they be? I don't know. Are you
1: hiding them? I am. I hiding them. Yes.
0: I can discover them.
1: Good. Do it.
0: <laughs> oh. <sighs> Has this reached the awkward silence that you like?
1: I think so. I think yeah. so. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for listening. This is Nick and Sean from the Podding Shed, the special guest of George and Jackson. You may have heard him in the background a little bit. I bet you did. This is a good microphone. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs>